Hi, I'm Sonia Jean Killebrew, and this is Black America and COVID, an oral history project. I started this project during Black History Month of 2022 because I wanted to provide a platform for Black Americans to share their stories about living, working, and or going to school during the COVID-19 pandemic. I also wanted to provide a space for people to memorialize someone who's a Black American who sadly lost their life to COVID-19. I was inspired by Zora Neale Hurston, the anthropologist and author, to record the experiences of Black Americans in their own voices. My goal is to get my recordings into museums such as the Smithsonian Museum of African-American history and culture. I'll share a little bit about me and my family before I introduce my guest today. I'm a Black American. My dad was African-American and Indigenous American. My mother is Jamaican-American. I'm a fourth-generation teacher. My mom is a retired New York City teacher. My grandmother was a teacher in Jamaica for 20 years and then in New York City for 20 years. And my great-grandmother was a teacher in Jamaica in the late 1800s up until she got married. She was the daughter of an Irish woman and a black man. And she stopped working after she got married because it wasn't considered respectable for a woman to work after she got married back then. Ironically, my mom began working long after she got married in the late 1900s, either the 1980s or 1990s. So without further ado, I'm excited to speak with my guest. I'm Kay Bell. I, I was born in Barbados, the West Indies, but I lived, I've lived in, um, in New York since I was one years old. I first in Harlem and then about for the last 15 years, I've lived in the South Bronx. Oh, I didn't know you were born in Barbados. Yes, I am a Caribbean girl. <laughs> my mom's Jamaican. I don't know if we talked about. Oh, that. I didn't know that. Okay. Wow. And how do you identify? As Caribbean American. Mm-hmm. Or just you. simply black. Or black. <laughs> and I, I know that you are a college professor, and I would love for you to share. Because Zora Neale Hurston is my inspiration for doing this, this oral history project. So could you just share about what you teach your class? So I teach an English course um, titled Writing for the Social Sciences. And I, and I themed it Exploring Issues That Affect Marginalized Communities. So the students, they um, conduct interviews, observations, and ultimately um, research. And so I always use Zerner Hurston as like the ultimate example of an ethnographic researcher. Um, she was one of those people who went into the field and immersed herself into the culture in order to get the story. And so that's exactly what I want my students to do with their assignments. Um, I always bring up an example of when she went to Haiti one time and she, she wanted to, when that's when she was studying voodoo. And she actually partake, she, you know, she actually um, did the voodoo rituals in order to like really understand, you know, what the people experienced and went through 
when you know they um had these voodoo rituals in fact one time she got she was paralyzed after one of the voodoo rituals so she was really serious about her research um by all means necessary she was gonna you know get that real authentic experience so yeah I I love Zora and Hurston and I love how like she inspired me to listen to Black Americans like in our own voices because the last book that got published posthumously and you said because um, Cujo, he was he spoke in his own voice, and publishers didn't want his language, basically. And to me, like I was telling you, like that is the most special part of the book for me, um, because when you read it, you really get a sense of who he was, and his you hear his pain, and it's not translated in I guess what the traditional English language, and so we kind of like really get a, a, a sense of what Zora Neale Hurston experienced when she was there with him. Um, I think that's the real unique special part of that book. Thank you. Thank you. And so now I'm, I'm really excited to hear about what you'd like to share about living at home and working from home during the pandemic and, and also having children going to school at home. Yeah, so I think one of the first things, before I even get into the the having the children at home part, (laughs) one of the first things I realized during the pandemic, um, living in the South Bronx, um, which is probably one of the um, most marginalized boroughs of all five, right? Because we have um, limited access to healthcare. Um, most, you know, most people of color live in this borough compared to the other boroughs. You know, Manhattan have all the landmarks and all the tourists goes there, but no one really comes to the South Bronx unless I guess they're going to say Yankees game. And so I, before the pandemic, I worked in Harlem and, um, you know, Harlem has been gentrified. So um, like things that I noticed immediately was at lunchtime, not having access to healthy food. Um, Taking my morning walks meant that I passed mounds of garbage, um, needles. Um, Even taking my sons to the park was a a real big challenge for me because um, I live near maybe two or three homeless shelters. And so a lot of um, people from the homeless shelter would be in the park smoking marijuana, And just, so what I noticed is just like the differences between um, living in the South Bronx and living in Harlem, where it's predominantly now, you know, white compared to the South Bronx, where it's predominantly people of color. And that for me was was probably the beginning of me having, like going into a depression. Um, And I think I didn't notice it before because I was always at work. And so I never really used my neighborhood to like walk around and, you know, have lunch or, you know, take my kids. We usually went outside of the neighborhood. And so that was a really big challenge for me. Mm. I didn't, I never thought about that, how Harlem becoming gentrified, how it's changed. Yeah, like you can, you know, you can get good food in Harlem. You can walk down the streets and there's not a whole bunch of garbage. Me and my husband would walk and we would count how many trash cans we saw in the corner in the Bronx. And and sometimes it was two. And we would walk at least a mile or two a day. So compared to Harlem where you see a trash can on every corner. So um, 
yeah, it was really hard at first. It, it was really challenging to accept that my neighborhood was in this condition. Oh, I can relate. You know, Star Davis, the poet? Yeah. One of my favorite poets. I love her. Before <laughs> she left New York, I visited her. And I, I'm from Queens. You know, from Queens to the Bronx, that's like at least a 90-minute commute. Yes. And I visited her before she left. And I remember getting off the six and seeing all the litter. And I was mm-hmm. like, okay, Sonia, just be calm. <laughs> And then when I got to her block, I saw a woman urinating behind a car. And I was, I called my mom and my mom's like, Sonia, you're in the South Bronx. (laughs) I was like, okay. So I know exactly what you mean, but it's heartbreaking. And I don't know how or or why that's even happening. Well, I think, you know, I, I always call the Bronx the forgotten borough. Although I also think that there's so much creativity and history in the Bronx, right? But I also feel like it's forgotten about. Um, I, 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 it's been at least two years that I've seen uh, the garbage cleanup truck come around here it's before the pandemic. I haven't seen one since then. So um, alternate side parking is not even a thing <laughs> because no one's coming to clean the streets. Um, yeah, and I think that definitely has to change. And I think the reason why it's like that, uh, you know, is because it is predominantly a borough of with, with people of color versus, you know, in Harlem, you know, Harlem has a history, first of all, because I lived in Harlem when it was like predominantly black and it was different. We moved from Harlem because the building we lived in was condemned. It was completely condemned. So we ended up leaving Harlem and moving to the Bronx. (laughs) And now that same building, I mean, where we used to pay $600 for a two-bedroom apartment, apartments are going for $3,000, $4,000 for those same apartments. So, you know, things have changed, um, you know, because of the gentrification. And that hasn't happened yet in the Bronx. And I think that is probably, you know, one of the biggest things. And so now we also talked about the, um, the, the MD, what are they called? The medical centers, the walk-in? Yeah. So what I'm, yeah, what I've noticed in like the last five years is that a lot of urgent care centers are going up all across the Bronx and even new low income buildings. Um, so where, uh, you know, Bronx sites are, you know, beginning to have that access to healthcare and um, I guess they are trying, that lady was probably urinating in the street. Maybe she, I think probably most likely she was probably homeless. Mm-hmm. Uh, homelessness is a big problem here in the Bronx. Mm-hmm. You know, we see it on 42nd street or, you know, 14th street in the main, you know, in the big um, parts of the city, but it's a big issue here. Mm-hmm. Um, just in the residential areas, you see people sleeping outside, you know? So yeah. Mm-hmm. I- Good to see those things starting to come up now. I never knew that. I told Star that was the one time I visited her. Yeah, I didn't know that. Wow. And so you're a professor, you said, of social sciences? Yeah, I t- well, it's an English class, but yeah, we focus on the social sciences and issues that affect marginalized communities. Um, Were you working, are you working on online now or during the pandemic? 
So I'm working in person now. And so I guess that will take us to um, how we was working with children <laughs> at home. Um, it was really, really challenging because I have two school age children. One, one of them, I have two sons, one seven and the other is 14. And balancing work and helping them with their schoolwork was really challenging. Um, you know, I was going from room to room, looking at the Google Classroom, trying to help the seven-year-old figure out what link to press, what to upload, helping the seven-year, I mean, the 14-year-old, you know, figure out um, how to use Zoom. And then I work in, um, I'm a professor, but I'm also an academic advisor at another school. So I have two jobs. And so navigating all of that during the pandemic was really challenging. There were some days around one o'clock, two o'clock in the afternoon. I'm like, everybody turn off their computer. We're done. (laughs) Like, I I can't do this. (laughs) Yeah. Like a lot of people said they just got zoomed out. Like they just couldn't do it anymore. Zoom fatigue is a real thing. Yeah. Like, you know, I felt really, really fatigued and, you know, I really started therapy, you know, because I needed therapy. I needed to talk about my mental and emotional exhaustion. Yes. Let's talk about that. Cause I was in therapy during the pandemic and I've spoken to a few other people who started therapy during the pandemic because of the anxiety and the exhaustion. And I'm just trying to counter the narrative that black Americans don't get therapy. Um, yeah, it's not true. I mean, I mean, I think that mental health and therapy was very taboo in the black community. But, you know, most of my friends, my black friends are in therapy. Mm-hmm. And I think the pandemic was a, it was it it it, it started it was horrible, of course, but I think that it did start this trend where more people were recognizing that they needed um to focus on their mental health. Um, just even look around the city. I think that our society needs to understand that mental health needs to be a priority. All of the things that was happening around the city where a lot of, you know, homeless people was like, you know, committing a lot of acts of violence that just did not make sense. You know, that, you know, was connected to some type of mental illness, you know? And so um, I don't, I think that the black community, that we are starting to have this conversation around mental illness and therapy. And it's not as taboo as it used to be. Mm, that's good to hear. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, because I, my dad is, well, he was a psychologist and my mom and dad met in graduate school at the new school. They were both getting master's degrees in psychology. So for me, okay. like therapy, I think everyone should have a therapy, even if they're happy and well-adjusted, you can always be happier, so. Yeah, 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 I think so too. I definitely agree with that. And so did your work transition to in-person in 2021 or 2022? Yeah, so um, I started teaching hybrid last semester, which was fall 2021. And then now I'm fully in-person, I'm teaching fully in person now. My full-time job as an academic advisor, we still haven't transitioned back full-time. Okay. We're doing hybrid. So I we rotate the schedule. So we we um I work three days from home, you know, I, we alternate the days Tuesday, 
Thursday, Friday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and then Monday, Wednesday, Friday. We alternate the schedule. So we're not completely back in person yet. Wow. And we're still not seeing students at all in person. So even though we're in the office, we're we're having Zoom appointments and talking to students over the phone. We're still not fully in person. Okay. <laughs> I know. I know. It's it's crazy. I know. <laughs> yeah. It's like they just like look. You gotta be here so we can know that you're working. <laughs> wow. So you're working at work with the kids are still at home. All right. Well, they're in school. So they went back full time um, uh, at the beginning of the school year. Both of oh, my kids. kids. Yeah. 2021, 20, you said the fall. Yeah, they, they went back fully in person for, for the 2021 school year. Yeah. Do they share? Do they like it better? Do they like it at home? Like. So, yeah, I think they do like it better because what I didn't realize, even as an educator, is like how important it is for um, students to have that social interaction with each other. And my seven-year-old, especially because he he didn't go to daycare. So he went to preschool um, full the whole year. And then in kindergarten, COVID happened. So he only was able to go to in-person kindergarten for half of the um the school year, not even half, a quarter, right? Because COVID happened in March. And then for first grade, he was completely online. So second grade, finally, he got to be in person, which I think he really, really appreciates. Um, Especially since he doesn't like having me as a teacher. (laughs) He's like, mommy, that's not how you do it. I'm like, look, I am qualified (laughs) to teach you. He doesn't think so. <laughs> well, yes, you're a college professor. You can teach him to write his name. <laughs> and I think the 14-year-old really likes being back in person too. Um, I think that for the same reason, he has those social interactions. And he's really even excited about having his prom and his um, commencement this year in person. So oh, from yeah. High school? yeah, he's he's going to high school next year. Wow. So now the schools, the mask mandate has ended, right? In New York City public schools? Yes. But my kids still wear masks. Okay. (laughs) So, you know, it's optional, but, and both of my kids, we're all vaccinated, but I I made the, the decision to make sure that they still wear their masks, you know, because with COVID, as you, we all know, things change overnight. You know, one one day it's this way. The next day we're seeing a surge happen all over again. So I think the safest thing to do is to keep um, the mask on for right now. Oh, that's good to hear. Let's see. And I've shared that I, during the pandemic, I helped, my mom is a retired New York City teacher. And I had to set up Zoom for her on her computer so she could attend about eight funerals online because a lot of people have passed away. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So I haven't interviewed her. I'm like saving her for like episode 100. Because <laughs> no, definitely, I would love to hear her in- the the interview with her and her experience and just well, you see, and that's another reason why mental health is so important. That that's draining and that does take a toll on our mental health. Um. You know, seeing people that we know, we interact with. We just saw them last week and 
their dad. You know, that that was a lot. Absolutely. Absolutely. Did you know of anyone who may have sadly passed away from COVID or just during the, those years? Well, thank God, I don't know anyone who passed away, but my husband had COVID, which is kind of weird because I've never had it. Oh. Well, that I know of. Every yeah. time I've tested, it's been negative. My kids never had it either. And my mom had it. So my mom stayed in the hospital for two months. And it, it was really weird because my mom was sick in November of 2019. So before COVID was really a big thing. And she was definitely sick. Um, the doctors called us and said, you all have to just come in. She's not going to make it through the night. Mm-hmm. And so um, when we got there, like all of her organs were failing. They put her on a respirator. It was really, really bad. And then she got better. Uh, and so uh, obviously, but then what we realized is that when all of the news that are coming out with COVID, we were like, wait a minute, maybe you should go test it for, um, to see if you have the antibodies. And sure enough, she did it. What? So this was in November 2019? That was November 2019. Mm. She actually went to like a hookah lounge (laughs) and and got sick a couple of days later. Mm. So like, I can only imagine how many other people in that lounge was also sick. But that was, yeah, that was scary because then we realized COVID has been here for much longer than we thought. Mm. Interesting. Wow. I'm glad that she's better now. Yeah. She made a a full recovery, but you know, there's still some lasting um, effects because of like her organs shutting down. Mm -hmm. Um, And even my husband who had a mild case because the doctor said he had a very mild case, he was really sick. And um, that's just, I've never seen him that sick ever. Um, And even he says like every now and then, it's like his breathing is, it just has never resumed to a hundred percent. Oh man. So they have long COVID. Yeah. Like uh, I think they call them long haulers. Oh. Yeah. Wow. I've, I interviewed a friend and she said that she still has um, lingering effects from COVID also. Yeah. And I think it's kind of weird that me and my husband, we share a bedroom, we share a bed, and I never got it, right? So I think that we kind of don't understand exactly fully or the doctors, everyone. I just don't, don't think it's like fully um, understood, like how and who it affects, you oh. know? Yeah, I was going to ask you that. Like, did he, he didn't go to a hotel to quarantine? Like, he was there? No, we can't afford one. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, and our apartment is really small. So um, he quarantined in the bedroom and the kids stayed in their room. I stayed in the living room. We all just stayed separate. And then like in the hallway, I have like this little um, stand. We kept the spray there. So every time someone used the bathroom, they sprayed. We didn't leave our areas without masks on. So we did little things like that. And I'm the only one that really left the apartment. So I would leave to do the shopping and um you know get the mail or or whatever else but everyone else pretty much stayed inside which was kind of like physically unhealthy because both of my kids gained like 20 pounds oh we all did i did girl (laughs) yeah Yeah. i've gained quite a bit of weight as well because there's no space so like we don't realize how much we walk around new york city until we just exactly yeah 
And especially as a writer, like that's where my inspiration came from. Walking around, smelling the air. It's like, a you know, people think maybe you just sit down and you write. It's like the entire world around you gives you that inspiration. So like the smell of the air, the trees, everything like, we, and we didn't have access to that during the pandemic, right? And so, yeah, it just, the our mental and physical and emotional, all, uh, everything was affected. Absolutely. I want to mention your, your beautiful book, but I went to your, your book launch. Was that in 2019? That was in 2020, right? It seems so far away. <laughs> it was in 2020. It must have been like January. It was like right before the shutdown, right? It was like, yeah, because it was in January and then the shutdown came March 2020. Wow. That was like literally right before. Yep. Yeah, your book is beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. Wow. And you have since had another book published? Yeah, so my thesis from the MFA program was published. Um, and both of the books are in the Schomburg um, Library in Harlem. So that's kind of exciting too. Um, the second book is called Diary of an Intercessor. It's also a collection of poems. And um, again, that, yeah, it was my thesis from the City College of New York. Oh, I love the Schomburg. And the first one is Cry, Sweat, Bleed, Write. Like, yes. Uh, yeah so wow so that book launches in 2020 it feels like so long ago it does because I feel like we we haven't really gathered well at least me I haven't really been to like any gatherings like that since the book launch um yeah I can't think of any that I've been to I went to an outdoor poetry reading I think it was in 2021 like in the summer 2021 but that was the last like outdoor poetry event I went to I haven't you know what one now that you bring that up I was in Central Park one day and there was a poetry reading next to where me and my husband was having lunch oh. and yeah so I kind of like unofficially <laughs> went to one because we stopped and we listened to it so yeah I, I do remember that <laughs> oh and I do have a question um so I got locks because I just you know like beauty salons are closed people are growing out their hair and I just need something that I wouldn't have to keep going to the salon but I was curious like did you grow your hair out or did you cut your hair yourself my husband became a barber <laughs> So I wear my hair short um, and like, like my sons, like we all go to the barbershop together, yeah. <laughs> but you know, during the pandemic, the barbershops were closed. So my husband was like, I'm going to start cutting your, your hair. I was like, I don't know if I trust it. <laughs> so I made him, I made him cut the little ones here first <laughs> to see how it would turn out. <laughs> and then, um, and then when I felt safe, I started letting them cut my hair. And he actually did a good job. So yeah, it's faded. Or is that still his? Work? Yeah, it's like faded on the side. It's like a, a, a mohawk fade type of situation. I love <laughs> yeah. it. I love it. And wow. it's so weird, right? We had to learn how to like do our own hair. Um I did order from Uber Eats a couple of times, like while I was working. 
Um, so I, I came to appreciate like the delivery services, but um, yeah, like I did a lot more cooking mm-hmm. and um, you know, you know, stuff like that. Like we just had to learn how to be more independent during the pandemic. Yeah. You know, more resourceful. <laughs> yeah. I started ordering groceries, which is something I thought I would never do. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I even bought like an exercise bike so I could exercise oh. in the house, um, which started to get really boring. Cause again, like you, you don't realize how those small interactions really matter in your everyday life. Like just being at the gym and being around other people or what I, I used to love going to the classes at the gym. And so not being able to like go to the, the, um, the cardio classes, like, you know, those things were really, it just was different. Absolutely. Yeah. I remember when my gym shut down, like in March, cause someone had COVID there and this is before the city shut down. It was like a week before. Um, and they thought it would be temporary. They're like, yeah, well, we open, we'll clean and reopen. And they, they didn't reopen for two years. Wow. And then like even going to the gym with a mask on, like I just, I couldn't do it. Couldn't like, do it. yeah, to work out with a mask. And they wanted you to have like the, um, the, uh, the N95 mask, the, the, the ones that really close everything. And I was like, I don't know how people... I don't know how people did it because that was really difficult for me. No, I did it once. I was like, and then it got all sweaty because I sweat a lot. I was like, no, I can't do this. Yeah. And I wear glasses. So my glasses were always fogging up. I spend so much money on like these little things that you put inside the mask to try not to fog up your mask. Like none of them didn't work. (laughs) I I gave it up. (laughs) I'm terrible. I just don't wear my glasses at work, which is really bad. Um, well at least you can see without your glasses I can't (laughs) like I cannot see at all without my glasses my vision is horrible my husband is like that he can take his off and still be able to see I it would be like I would need like uh someone to help me I could not walk around without my glasses yeah they just get all fogged up it's hard to wear a mask and the glasses yeah yeah it's true (laughs) Is there anything else you'd like to share um, just about life during the pandemic or anything? Well, if, if there's anything that I would like to leave off with, I think that um, being Black during the pandemic was definitely a unique situation. I think that a lot of us, or at least let me, let me say being Black, um, because I know that not all Black people are from the South Bronx, right? Like there's some affluent Black communities, and they probably don't have some of the challenges that um, we have. But being, uh, I guess, lower middle class Black person during the pandemic, it, it was unique in the sense where I felt really isolated and really, like, you really start to think about um, your, the, the 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 disparities right between the the communities and like what you don't have um and I think that's probably where the depression starts to set in right you realize like well if I had more money I can do this or I can do that or or this or even listening to the news like we were talking about and hearing all of these bad things about um what was happening to the communities of color and thinking okay well 
what if this happens to me or when will this happen to me? Um, just the anxiety of it all, right? So um, I think for me, my experience is not only like being black, but just also um, being part of like the, the you know, a, a social economic status, a lower social economic status and not, you know, um, being able to have the, the funds or the money to go to my remote island or I had to completely cut off social media because seeing the things like, Kim Kardashian um, having lavish parties or other celebrities or other people saying like, I'm going here or I'm going there because they had the money to and I didn't. It just kind of makes you more aware of your circumstances. And I think that it just felt so unfair and so isolating and just the amount of resilience that it takes to kind of like bounce back from that experience. Um, it's just, it's, 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 it's a lot, it's significant. It's not, it's, it wasn't easy to do. Um, and I think that many of us that were in this same situation that we should pat ourselves on the back, that we did survive. And, or let me say, we, a lot of us begin to thrive. We begin to look for new ways. And I think that is just the, um, the theme of being like a black person, right? Learning how to use what we have to thrive, not even just survive, to become the best. You know, um, I'm thinking about at work, how much I struggled in the beginning with my work from home. And at towards the end, before we went back even hybrid, how, you know, my director had to point out to, to uh, my immediate supervisor, like, wow, like she went from this to this. Because as a Black person, we know that resilience, that tenacity. We know how to use the little that we've, that we've been given and make it more and make it work for us. And I think that is the special part of um, being Black and knowing that we can, we can navigate through any circumstance, even the pandemic, despite what the news may say that Black people were, were dying the quickest, Black people this, Black people that. At the end of the day, we they, we were still learning how to thrive and to use the little resource that we had to, you know, make it through. Many of us survived. Absolutely. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Well, thank you, Kay Thank you for your time. Um, thank you for having me. And I think this is a really special project. And I just be, I'm, I appreciate being part of it. Oh, absolutely. As a poet, as a professor, as a mom, as a wife, like a New Yorker, and now I know that you're Caribbean. Like, I just really <laughs> want to hear what your life was like. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. My name is Sonia Jean Killebrew, and this is my oral history project, Black America and COVID. Thank you.